This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Hi, everybody. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. Pastor Maxwell liked to preach. He thought he was pretty good at it, and he enjoyed his job. The message that day was from 1 Peter 2.21. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his footsteps. You know, a simple passage, easy to understand, maybe in a different translation. Basically, since Jesus suffered for you, you should follow, and here are some important words, in his steps. In his steps. Maxwell delivered it with the passion and flair his congregation expected. This was the church to attend. He was good at his job, they had a great choir, and the church had a lot going for it. Just as Maxwell sat down and the choir started singing, they were interrupted by the voice of a man from the back of the room. Uh, Excuse me? He was a drifter, on his way through town, looking for work. The pastor had shrugged him off a few days earlier, and now he was back. He told everybody that he'd lost his job as a printer. Regrettably, I lost my job recently. Maybe the church had grown tired of so many men looking for jobs. Whatever it was, he just wasn't given an opportunity. Or shelter. If these people were supposed to walk as Jesus in his steps, as the sermon's Bible reading said, why was he ignored? Perhaps the trouble in our world wouldn't exist if the people in the pews simply lived as Jesus did. The man stopped, stumbled, and fell to the ground, only to die a short while later. Pastor Maxwell was haunted by the man's words, so much so that he devised a plan, a challenge for his congregation. Only a few days after the vagabond's death, he delivered a new sermon. I want volunteers from the first church who will pledge themselves earnestly and honestly for an entire year not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? And after asking that question, each one will follow Jesus as exactly as he knows how, no matter what the result may be. This story is from a work of fiction called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon first published in 1896. Estimates vary, but the book has sold between 30 and 50 million copies worldwide. For 60 years after its publication, it was the number one book in the United States after the Bible. It's most famous for coining the phrase, what would Jesus do? In his steps, while popular, is also controversial. Though it didn't start the movement, It was important in spreading what's known as the social gospel, a movement that concerned itself with issues of labor and public welfare. While it promoted social action in Christian circles, it also frightened many Christians. 
because it sounds a lot like socialism. Think about it. If people just acted a certain way, then all of mankind's troubles would be over. In an era of collectivization, labor strikes, and an impending world war, ideas like this were suspicious. The battle to nail down what was truly American was in overdrive. The struggle for a just society and an open market would come together under one flag. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. The American Civil War ended in 1865. Family fought family, state against state. When the dust settled, there were a lot of moving pieces. How would the country, bloodied and disjointed, move forward? There were a lot of questions to settle as the nation rebuilt itself. And to help tell that story, we've got a special guest, Professor Charles Dorn. Uh, Sure, so uh, I'm Charles Dorn. I'm a professor of education at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. I'm the author of um, Education, Democracy in the Second World War. And my most recent book, which I co-authored with my colleague Randy Curran at the University of Rochester, is Patriotic Education in a Global Age. This was the era of Reconstruction, when the nation put itself back together again. This is a a period of significant divide in the nation's history. You know, it's not as if the Civil War ends and America reunifies and everyone's happy again. It's decades, decades worth of conflict and tension. And um, there's an impeachment (laughs) mixed in there. Um, There is a Northern army of occupation in the Southern states. I mean, this is a time of um, real discord in the country. This is a fascinating period of history with lots of moving pieces. Northern troops withdrew from the South. Freed black slaves headed North. Urbanization, the rise of the cities in the United States. The temperance and suffrage movements, the introduction of a national currency, the settling of the West and immigration. Really, when we're in the post-Civil War period, stretching into the early 20th century, that is the the period of largest immigration um, into the United States. Well, up until that point, immigrants from eastern and southern regions of Europe were coming here in large numbers. This was also a new age of empire where countries, including the U.S., claimed more and more land 
for themselves. And all of this uh, creates um, a tremendous amount of disruption in American society. We were looking very different as a country than we ever did before, with new immigrants who did not look like us or identify with the U.S. the way that other Americans might. We were not a unified people. And even before the Civil War um, in the United States, most people would not have identified themselves as Americans first. They would have identified themselves as um, citizens of their state, right? And that would have been true in the North as well. That kind of regionalism is dangerous because it pits us against ourselves. That was a significant player in the Civil War. Disunity. States versus big government. With the war over and new immigrants pouring in, how would we unify? There were lots of ideas. But one is um, to use public schools really for the first time in American history, um, to use the public schools to foster a sense of national unity or identity. Public schools. When you're trying to bond all the disparate peoples together as one, a common base of knowledge and beliefs is important. But which beliefs would we agree on? Even if we could decide on one set of beliefs for all public schools to adopt, there was one tiny little problem. Even following the Civil War, for the states that do have, let's say, state-level departments of education, um, the staff in those departments is usually one or two people. Public schooling occurs really on a local basis in the United States well into the 20th century. Ours was not a nationally organized educational system. So how do you get people without a unified curriculum on the same page? It had to be simple. Schools were run by just a few people, so you couldn't create a lot of extra work. What to do, what to do? How about a symbol, a specific object or graphic that represents everyone? Hey, it's a basic part of humanity. We love symbolism. Roman emperors had their symbols on coins. Napoleon rallied the French around the image of bees, as do Mormons. Christians have the fish and the cross and WWJD bracelets. We love symbols. So which symbol would the nation rally around? How about the old stars and stripes? This, I, you know, I find this myself to be quite interesting. I mean, if you think about the public schools in, in your community or the public schools, if you went to a public school, the public schools you went to, I mean, flags were just ubiquitous. Um, they're right there in every classroom. And oftentimes they are also um, flying from a flagpole that is right in the middle of uh, the front of the school. We're used to seeing them everywhere now, like in every classroom. But if you went back in time to the 1850s and walked around a school, most likely you would not have seen flags. So it's the Civil War veterans groups, uh, the Women's Auxiliary Group to the Grand Army of the Republic uh, is, plays a central role here. And, um, and they basically work to have flags put into the, into the classrooms, and they're very successful. Creating a big market for flags that 
somebody had to fulfill. And there is a magazine called The Youth's Companion, which is a, a, a well-subscribed magazine, one of the first magazines that is designed um, and marketed towards both adults and children. That magazine gets the idea that they can increase subscriptions by getting on board with the flag movement and encouraging people to purchase flags, and they begin selling flags, and, and indeed their subscription uh, rates go up. Um, but slowly over time, the sort of flag market, if you will, begins to saturate and um, flag sales are no longer increasing. You could say that sales were flagging. <sighs> Not my best. The Youth's Companion magazine needed to jumpstart sales. So they turned to a former Baptist minister. A man by the name of Francis Bellamy. Francis Bellamy to be in charge of their marketing campaign. He and a colleague came up with a big idea. What they come up with is, is to tie the work that the Youth Companion's been doing, to tie that to the 400th celebration of um, Columbus's voyage. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, so that plus 400 years, the, the celebration would take place in 1892 country was already planning the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition, in Chicago. The place where the world would be introduced to things like the Ferris wheel. With all that excitement already in place, why not just piggyback on that event? I mean, it is an interesting sort of thing that, the, um, that this effort to create a program that would unify the nation was tied up essentially with marketing flags, right? It's a very American story, I think. Patriotism by way of capitalism, celebrating not only the end of the Civil War, but also the spreading of the US across a big chunk of North America. I'm looking at you, Manifest Destiny, and out into the oceans, just like Christopher Columbus. Bellamy encourage, encourages that communities celebrate Columbus Day and in a, in a particular way, and it's going to be gatherings at the schools, um, bringing students together and families and communities together and holding a sort of, you know, series of events on that day. Kind of like how people celebrate the 4th of July today some ceremonies and speeches, and what do you need at a patriotic celebration? That's right, flags. They wanted these events to be easy for people to reproduce on their own. So they created a kit that laid out the various stages of these celebrations, patriotism by numbers. And as a part of that, Bellamy writes, a pledge of allegiance to the United States. A now famous pledge that would be said at the event. You've got it, this is the origin of the Pledge of Allegiance, part of a kit celebration used to sell flags. But the pledge we say now is not quite the pledge they said in 1892. The original went something like this. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. You may notice some things are missing there. First of all, it doesn't say which flag they are pledging to. And of course, there is no mention of God. Kind of interesting considering it was written by a former minister. 
Bellamy didn't include the god stuff in his original version of the pledge. That's worth noting. It would be decades, decades before that changed. This is one of those things people scrap about. With Christian Americans pointing to this mention of God in the National Pledge as proof that the U.S. is a Christian nation. Well, it didn't sneak into the pledge until the 1950s, 60 odd years after the pledge was originally written. Also, just to make this story stranger, this guy Bellamy, the guy who got the capitalist urge to use the Columbian Exposition to sell flags, was a Christian socialist. And so he is, um, he is a part of what was called the social gospel movement in the United States. And this is a predominantly Protestant um, uh, movement that develops in the United States. One way to sort of describe is this is that over the course of the, of the 19th century, as the country begins to become a bit more secular and um, some distance from its, um, from its more, let's say, Calvinist roots um, grows, that the idea is that the nation is going to be able to find perfection of the kingdom of God on earth. This may sound crazy, right? bringing the kingdom of God to earth? But the 1800s were a time of massive change in Christianity. This is when preaching to the individual became the thing to do, encouraging a personal commitment to Christ, an individualistic approach to the gospel. We also saw the rise of utopian cults like the Oneida community. Spiritualism was on the rise. I mean, you know spiritualism, right? Consulting spirits? It's the stuff Rasputin toyed with in Russia. It started here in the United States, in this era. Premillennialism, the idea that God would snatch his people up to heaven before the end times tribulation, while not a new idea, was not nearly as widespread then as it is now. It's maybe the most popular end times idea in American Christianity today, but it wasn't back then. A lot of people believed that heaven could exist here on earth. People like Bellamy. And that Christians um, need to be acting in ways that will actually bring about that kingdom of God on earth. And one of the impulses during this period in the United States towards social, political, and economic reform is in fact um, this, this Christian motivation, if you will, um, to, to, um, to perfect American, you know, society. Which brings us to the social gospel. Whoa, horsey, whoa! What, you didn't know I produced the show while riding a horse? I, I don't, actually. It's, it's a pony. We need to stop here for a moment. The social gospel is a really nebulous concept. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If you thought that nailing down the definition of socialism was hard, well, get ready. To some, the social gospel is the name for simply being socially conscious. I love Jesus, and I want to advocate for better working conditions, educating children, helping the poor. To others, it's about bringing the literal kingdom of heaven to earth. That could be through socialism, or capitalism with a lot of reform, or straight-up capitalism, but, you know, 
the nice kind, and, and really everything in between. A lot of people with diverse opinions identify with the social gospel, and they don't all agree with each other. I mean, life is complicated. We're cool with that, right? One of the people who carved out a name for himself in the social gospel was Charles Sheldon. He wrote the book In His Steps, which includes the story about the drifter from the top of the show. He imagined a small town where people went around asking themselves, what would Jesus do every time they tackled a situation? I mean, sounds like a good practice, right? Should I pay my workers enough money? What would Jesus do? Can I cut off the driver in front of me who's going too slowly? What would Jesus do? Do I really need to pay taxes? Can I steal from my neighbor's garden? Is it okay for me to print whatever I want in my newspaper? What would Jesus do? In His Steps is not without its critics. Some say that Sheldon's view of the gospel is too focused on works and not enough on salvation. Essentially, the argument against it is this. The social gospel is about what would Jesus do? Others say Christianity is about what Jesus has already done. Maybe the people in the town should be evangelizing their neighbors instead of just being nice to them. I don't know why we struggle so much to do both, like to do good things and to evangelize, but there it is. Many Christians believe what the Bible says, that we can't earn our salvation. So they get itchy whenever someone starts encouraging good works, because it might cause some people to think that they can earn their salvation. But sometimes, if I'm being honest, we use that argument as an excuse to ignore the needs around us. I mean, can I get an amen? I'll just assume you said it. Also, some people see the social gospel as veiled socialism. Remember this sentiment from the dying man at the beginning of the show? Perhaps the trouble in our world wouldn't exist if the people in the pews simply lived as Jesus did. That could mean giving up luxuries, providing housing for people, being honest in our business dealings, asking how do my actions impact those around me, looking out for the entire community instead of just the individual. Which can sound a lot like collectivism. It really doesn't have to be, but sometimes when people talk social gospel, they are talking straight-up socialism. Depends on the person. And yes, all these different ideas claim the same term. Social gospel. Confusing, right? Well, as we've learned, that's history. Okay, so back to the story. Onward story! Yeah. Okay, back to Professor Dorn talking about Bellamy, the guy who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. He has a cousin who writes a remarkably popular novel at the time called Looking Backward. And it's a utopian novel. The idea is that we actually can uh, create the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. And this is what it would look like if we sort of do these things. One way to create a better society was to take all of these disparate people from lots of backgrounds, former slaves, former slave owners, immigrants, pioneers to the West, city dwellers in the East, and get them on the same team. We needed to assimilate, to find some commonality. And there are all sorts of different ways that we can do that, but, but one is to teach their kids to be good American citizens. Kids learn by repetition, through things like the Pledge of Allegiance, which was a big hit after the Columbus celebrations. 
it spread organically at first, with schools adopting it here and there. New York State is the first state to legislate uh, the recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance, and it's essentially in response to the Spanish-American War. The day after we declared war on Spain, New York legislated the first mandatory pledge in schools. We covered parts of the Spanish-American War a few weeks ago if you want to learn more. Early adopters of the pledge did not salute the flag the way that we do, with our hand over our heart. Instead, they extended their right arms out and up with their palm flat, like, well, kind of like the Nazi salute. I'll give you one guess as to why we changed it to hands over our heart. It wouldn't become the official pledge of the nation until 1942. The pledge itself did quite a bit of shape-shifting along the way. Again, the original pledge says, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands. And in the early 20th century, um, some of the promoters of Americanism um, become nervous that um, immigrant kids could be standing in class reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And... Uh, and when they say, I pledge allegiance to my flag, they could be thinking of the flag of their homeland and not the United States. This whole thing was supposed to bring unity. We couldn't have students pledging their allegiance to Germany or Austria, right? So it was changed to... I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic of which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Okay, so the pledge there is sounding a lot like it does today, with one notable exception. Under God isn't added actually until 1954. 1954. 1954. It's not until 1954 that God is added to the pledge. We're going to be talking a lot about the 50s for the next few months. That era experienced a spiritual and patriotic explosion, though the seeds of it were planted well before then. Adding under God to the pledge in the Eisenhower administration didn't happen in a vacuum, or just because of the revival of faith in the public square. It was also in response to the rise of communism and socialism. Maybe you're wondering what does under God have to do with fighting communism? If you remember, the textbook version of communism, the Marxist ideal, is inherently atheistic. We like to refer to godless communism like it's a joke. Godless communism. But remember, Russia had two pro-communist magazines called Godless. They openly persecuted religious people. Marx said that once communism was realized, that the world would no longer need religion which he saw as an invention humans created to deal with their pain. In response to atheistic, collectivist communism, as we'll demonstrate, the U.S. did its level best to marry religion, capitalism, and patriotism, especially in the public square. And one way to do it is to, is to get kids to recite a pledge um, that declares that they're, they're one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Seems a little simple, right? I mean, fight communism with a short pledge? But that's how we as citizens learn stuff from an early age, through things like pledges, simple recitations. We've done this throughout Christian history too, creating simple creeds and songs so people can understand Christianity. 
Of course, not everyone is excited about adding under God into the pledge. And not everyone is okay with a pledge at all. We'll get into that in a bonus episode next week. For the rest of this episode, let's focus on the idea of the pledge as it is. When I think about pledges and trying to get patriotic ideas into kids' heads, I feel a little squeamish. This kind of education sounds a little creepy, right? Less like education and more like indoctrination. I asked Professor Dorn about my misgivings. Yeah, so it's it's a very interesting question, this idea of, you know, what is indoctrination and what role does it play in, in schooling? So there are a couple of things you can say about that. One is that all education is political to some degree and in some way. Education, certainly in the 21st century, um, is central to um, uh, developing a student's sense of themselves as citizens in a democratic republic. And that means we need them to question things. Um, indoctrination, on the other hand, is sort of you know the, the other side of that, which is, well, no, actually, we don't want them to question. We want them to believe a set body of knowledge about something. And so those two things are very much in tension. Uh, and schools are the places where those tensions become sort of manifest. And certainly, we ask public school teachers on a daily basis to sort of navigate the tensions that we've imposed on them um, when it comes to asking them to both teach their students to think critically and um, teach them to adopt some sort of an identity that has something to do with being an American citizen. Going forward, you're going to see that there are loads of parallels between U.S. history and Soviet history. We went through labor disputes at the same time. We struggled to create a national identity at the same time. We set off to create empires, us with the Spanish-American War and them with the Russo-Japanese War. The difference is how we handled those conflicts. We were in no small part driven to become the nation we are today because of their decisions. They went collectivist and we focused on the individual, not just economically, but theologically. They went communist and we struggled with labor unions. This 4th of July, as you think about patriotism, as maybe you wave a flag at a parade, think about the decisions that were made that brought you there about the teachers who helped to shape you into the person you are today. While our goal may not be heaven on earth, consider how you and yours can help others. And if you like, with your hand over your heart, not out in front of you like a Nazi, over your heart, consider the weird twist of events that brought about flags in every school and our ever-changing pledge. Do you have thoughts on the Pledge of Allegiance or on education? We'd love to hear them. Contact me via social media, that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, really almost anywhere, at at Truce Podcast. And I'd love to see a picture of where you are on the 4th. Take a photo and tag us. Thanks to Professor Charles Dorn. His books are For the Common Good, A New History of Higher Education in America, and patriotic education in a global age. 
for a list of select sources, check out our website at trucepodcast.com. Once you're there, you can join our email list, hear previous episodes, and donate to keep this show going. If you want to keep hearing great content, please donate to keep it coming. My challenge to you this week is this. I really need to double the listenership of this podcast by the end of the summer. That sounds really, really difficult, but all it takes is each of us telling one or two people about the show. Would you please text or call a friend right now to tell them about Truce? It would make a big, big difference. Leave us a comment and a rating on your podcasting app and subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. Thanks to Nick Starin and Andy Pearson for their support. Look for a bonus episode out next week, and we'll be back with a full episode in two weeks. Some of the extra vocal work on this episode was provided by Kale Nelson and his family. Kale is the host of the Modern Christian Men's Podcast. Thank you, Team Nelson. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.